ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, tai chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hey there, listeners. I'm Dan Efron. I'm sitting in for Amy McKinnon, who's off on vacation. Yes, we take those from time to time. And this is Foreign Policy Playlist. You know the drill. We listen to a whole bunch of podcasts from around the world and recommend a new one each week. This week, we're featuring Westminster Insider, a podcast series by Politico Europe that offers insight into how Westminster really works. In just a minute, we're going to play the first episode of season two. The show looks back at 20 years of conflict in Afghanistan. But first, host Jack Blanchard spoke with our own Amy McKinnon about the mission of the podcast and how the series came about. So Westminster Insider launched fairly recently. Was it December of last year? Yes, that's right. How was it launching a podcast in the pandemic? Really, really complicated. We were really trying to figure out how to do it as we were going along. Um, here in the UK, Politico um, doesn't have a didn't have a podcast before we set this up, and I hadn't made podcasts before, so we really were figuring it out as we were going along. And obviously, well, maybe not obvious to you in the US, but at that time in the UK, we really were in the height of the pandemic. Um, Boris Johnson announced a fairly substantial lockdown on what we could do at around Christmas time, just as we were about to launch the first season. And that meant that mm. the idea of, you know, meeting people in person to interview them was borderline illegal. You know, it just wasn't an option. And so we very much was trying to figure out how to get the audio right in the confinement of my bedroom, how on earth we would do these interviews and, and make the sort of high quality documentary style podcast that we'd been planning for months uh, with the new restrictions that were in place. And what was the idea behind the podcast? You know, the, the name gives it away, Westminster Insider, but just tell me a little bit more about, about what, what its thesis is, what you're looking to do. So I've been a political journalist in the UK for the best part of 10 years, hanging around in Westminster, getting to know a lot of the people that matter in Westminster, the the key aides and the ministers and the MPs and the journalists who make things happen. And I used to write the morning playbook emails for Politico, which was very much the sort of thing you need to read in the morning to figure out what's going on in Westminster. And we we wanted to, to move that forward into the audio world and try and figure out how you do that and use those contacts but do something that translates into a, into a podcast. And the idea that we hit upon was that we would take a single theme each week, a single different mm. theme of British politics, and really try and dig into it, get these people who I've spent years building up contacts with on the show to talk about this one issue in lots of depth, use my knowledge and, and give me the time to research that topic and try and create sort of individual, almost timeless little documentaries that would give our listeners an insight partly into what it's like to be in Westminster, but also to really dig into some of these issues around politics. And, and the, the breadth of what we were looking at is, is, really, is really very broad indeed. We've done episodes on aspects of foreign policy, which I'm sure your listeners will be more interested in, but equally aspects of life in Westminster, the way the pandemic's changed, the way that politics works, um, individual roles within government. We've, we've taken a close look at all the way down to the art of political drinking and why everyone in Westminster drinks so much and, and, and what fuels that and is it funny or is it actually quite a serious problem and, and all that that kind of thing. So it's the idea was really that something that people who work in British politics in particular would be interested to listen to themselves. I don't even know how my accent sounds these days but I'm a Brit obviously working in Washington 
I'm kind of a strange creature in that I'm far more familiar with the Washington media world and political world than I ever have been with the British one. I've never lived in London or worked in London. And Politico here is obviously just known for being so scoop driven, as we said. They scoop us routinely. It's extremely annoying. Their journalists <laughs> are incredible. Um, and, and that very insidery look at kind of American politics. And how, just for you working for an American publication in the UK and knowing, as you've spent many years in the kind of Westminster media world, how do you compare the kind of Washington world in these terms and, and, and the Westminster British world? I think in many ways they are very similar. You know, it's the same. You see the same sorts of stories around the same sorts of characters appearing. I would say American politics tends to be a bit more extreme than British politics in many ways. The the characters are a bit more extreme in the stuff that they're saying, in the way that they're acting. But you see these powerful figures and, and then you see these sort of the people around them. And often it's the people that are around them that we as journalists, one, get access to, but also find can become very interesting characters in their own right. And I, I, I watched that happen on both sides of the Atlantic uh, with ab- absolute fascination. I mean, you know, to an extent, Western politics is Western politics in, in, in every capital. You know, when Politico came to Europe first time in 2015 they didn't first come to london they went to brussels to cover the eu and everyone said oh the eu it's so boring nobody cares about that but politico saw it differently they put tons of journalists in there and found that yep sure enough if you went to cover it like you covered washington the same stories were there you had these same powerful politicians these same all-powerful aides you had stories about corruption and about lying and about cheating and about misuse of money and policies that were completely stupid and 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 that was all there to be written about and exposed it's just nobody was doing it in that sort of very insidery way And, and and london is 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 absolutely the same you know once you peel back the sort of the, the wood panelling and the old edifices of, of, of the 19th century parliament building, you know, I'm sure it doesn't look so different from Congress at all. I was so impressed listening to your podcast at the guests that you get. How much work is it to get these high profile people? I mean, you've had Tony Blair, you've had Nigel Farage on the most recent one, which we're going to feature. You've got Tom Tugdenhart, you've, you've got Rory Stewart. Just how difficult is it to get, you know, people of this magnitude on the show each week? I mean, it's, it's a lot of work, but I think... It's partly just having worked in British politics for a long time. You get you do get to know a lot of these people, you know, over over a long period of time. You, you build up good contacts with politicians. Sometimes you might get to know them when they weren't so famous and then they become famous. Or sometimes you, you become very good friends with the people that are working for them. And that can be a way to get people on. I think as well, having had the experience of writing the playbook email every morning since we set that up in the UK for such a long time. A lot of people know me here through that as well and and therefore more likely to say yes to a request because they almost feel like they know you because you've been reading your morning email every day for three years or whatever, you know. But it is a big part of my week is frankly chasing around and pestering people desperately to try and get them on because at the end of the day, I feel like the guest list is such a big part of the show. If you if you want to if you want to make a podcast about the G7 and and what it's like to be in the G7, then I just knew that really you need someone who's been in the room. You know, it's fine to have journalists talking about what they think of it and that's important and it's fine to have organizers or whatever, but nothing can compare to hearing Tony Blair himself say this is what it's like to walk into the room with Bill Clinton there and president of France there and and all those other people and and what that actually feels like. No one else can describe that except for one of those leaders. And so having covered Westminster for so long you know and kind of looking at the nitty-gritty inside do you have like a single favorite anecdote like what is the craziest story that you love to tell in the pub about your years of covering Westminster oh my god I can't possibly tell you those stories (laughs) (laughs) right that that you can tell on the record (laughs) Bring, bring me down straight away um there was a time you mentioned Nigel Farage who we interviewed for the the show about political drinking because he is probably British politics' most famous passionate drinker, shall we say. There was a time during an election, I was working for a tabloid newspaper at the time, and there was an election on and we got a tip that Nigel Farage had gone away to the Mediterranean at the weekend when all of his people were out, you know, pounding the streets and desperately trying to drum up support. And he'd gone off to Malta, I think it was, in the Mediterranean for some conference and was living it up over there when he should have been out, you know, knocking on doors and like all his party faithful were. So I got sent over on an aeroplane at about literally two hours notice and 
went driving around Malta trying to look for Nigel Farage to see if it's true. <laughs> and sure enough, found him sort of tottering out of a nightclub at three o'clock in the morning, uh, arm in arm with somebody. Uh, and yeah, and, and we were sort of lurking in the street going, is that really Nigel Farage? I can't believe this is actually happening. And sure enough, it was him and we'd found him. And that was indeed front page news in, in British politics the next day. Now, that is not a normal gig for a political journalist. Most of the time what we do is, you know, we hang around in restaurants and bars and cafes and we talk to people and try and get tidbits of information about new policy. I did not expect to find myself lurking down a dark street in Malta <laughs> at three o'clock in the morning <laughs> looking for Nigel Farage on a who was on a secret holiday but sure enough there he was and uh, and yeah there we got our story not that it did Nigel Farage the slightest bit of harm I should add that was great is there anything else you want to add or anything I haven't touched upon that you think is worth mentioning no just to say that this episode that you're going to play for your listeners I'm really pleased you've chosen that one because it's one that meant a lot to me making it you know some of our episodes are I don't want to say they're frivolous but you know they look at a less serious side of British political life and I think this episode is one of the most important and the most serious ones that we've done you know nothing nothing has really been more important in terms of what Britain's done in the last 20 years its expedition in Afghanistan and 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 we've seen the implications of the way that that the West has pulled out these past few weeks and to hear these these three guys who knew it so well and were so closely involved in the nation building process talk about it in really quite raw human terms i found it hugely affecting as an interviewer to hear from them and hear from them in the way they spoke about it mm-hmm. uh, and so i hope your listeners like it too that was jack blanchard and here now is the episode from westminster insider postcards from afghanistan it is great to be back in kabul especially in such a momentous week in the history of Afghanistan. These are capable, determined forces, said David Cameron in 2014, as he proudly surveyed the Afghan army and security services on a visit to Kabul. Afghan forces are now responsible in every province and every city for keeping Afghanistan's people safe. It is striking how far they've come, Cameron said. Afghan forces have proved to the Taliban that their aims will not be achieved through violence and intimidation. Well, so much for that. Cameron was speaking in October 2014 on what was essentially a farewell visit to Afghanistan, three months before he withdrew the last British combat troops from the country. Together we've made Afghanistan safer and we've made Britain safer. And in Britain, you will always have a strong partner and a good friend. His words, it goes without saying, now sound a little hollow as the Taliban conclude their extraordinary rout of those very same Afghan forces and prepare to take complete and brutal control of the nation and its people once again. I was part of the press pack accompanying David Cameron on that 2014 trip to Afghanistan. And even then, his words felt kind of detached from the reality around us. The PM was speaking to us in blazing Afghan sunshine at a press conference outside the presidential palace in Kabul. It's only a few miles from the airfield where our plane had landed, but the NATO commanders who greeted us there explained the safest way for us to make the short hop across town was not, in fact, by car or by taxi, but in Black Hawk military helicopters. Now, an open-door chopper ride over central Kabul, courtesy of the US Air Force, was... I'm not going to lie, kind of exciting for a bunch of young journalists in flak jackets. But it did also suggest the Afghan forces may not have quite had the handle on domestic security, which Cameron wished to portray. Today, seven years on from that press conference, and almost two decades after the initial invasion, Britain and the West can only sit back and survey the ruins of all they tried to build in Afghanistan. The hand-wringing, the finger-pointing, the I-was-writing and the how-did-we-get-it-so-wronging will continue for weeks, months, years, perhaps for a generation. The chief victims of this tragedy are, of course, the Afghan people, now seemingly consigned, after decades of bloodshed, 
to life under the most repressive of Islamist regimes. Here in Westminster, this crushing failure is felt most keenly among those who devoted time and energy and passion to the new Afghanistan, who risked their lives to try to secure it, to rebuild it, or who formed close bonds with people living there and are now scrambling to escape the chaos. So for the first episode of this podcast's third season, I'm speaking to some of those in Westminster who know Afghanistan and the British mission there best, and for whom the events of the past two weeks have cut particularly deep. Rory Stewart, the former cabinet minister and Penrith MP, who famously spent weeks walking solo across Afghanistan in the aftermath of the 2001 war. This is a totally irresponsible, reckless thing with no transition in place. It's extraordinary and it's heartbreaking. Tom Tugendhat, the Tunbridge MP and Select Committee Chairman, who spent four years in Afghanistan during the late 2000s. I thought we could do it, not because of who we were, but of who the Afghans were and are. Dan Jarvis, the South Yorkshire Mayor and Barnsley MP, who spent months in Helmand Province as a British Army Major. The situation was so dangerous that literally every day you wondered whether you'd make it to the end of the day. How do those whose lives have been so closely enmeshed with the Afghan campaign reflect on the events of the past few weeks? With the Taliban back in charge, was any of it worth it? And after the scenes we've watched unfold on our television screens this week, will we ever try anything like this again? From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we'll be listening to these very personal postcards from Afghanistan and asking where on earth we can possibly go from here. It's December 2001, and the Taliban have been forced from power. The victorious US military, still smarting after the carnage of 9-11, have one eye on Osama bin Laden and the Tora Bora Mountains, and another already turning towards Iraq. Afghanistan remains a smoking ruin as this first phase of the Afghan war comes to an end. But in Kabul, the first Western tourist has already landed. I first arrived in Afghanistan at the end of 2001, right at the end of the Taliban period, just after 9-11. This, of course, is Rory Stewart, the former International Development Secretary and MP for Penrith. You surely know the story by now, but in his late 20s, when most of our political class were working as spads or lobbyists or journalists or whatever, Stewart quit his job and embarked on an epic two-year hike across Asia. Undaunted by the obvious dangers, he made his way, alone, on foot, through Afghanistan in the aftermath of the 2001 invasion. I remember entering Kabul and seeing what was really a ghost town. It was extraordinary. The the streets were broad, but there were no cars on the streets. The shops were shut. There were no people really to be seen. The suburbs were bombed out shells of buildings. And... I then went on to walk across Afghanistan through a country where there was no electricity for 350 miles, where there were no clinics, where girls were not in school. It was a terrifying vision of a country which had been living under this form of medieval rule and which uh, was in abject poverty. What was the sort of feeling amongst people about what had just happened, about the regime they'd been living under and, and about what they perceived the West to be trying to do there? In villages... In Hazarajat, I was in villages where the Taliban had burnt them to the ground. Uh, they were almost empty and had sowed salt into the fields. Street after street where all the houses were burnt and the roof beams were missing. So for those communities, there was immense relief, but also trepidation, because they were very unsure about what the future would hold. They were nervous about foreign troops coming in. They were unsure what kind of Afghan government would replace the Taliban. Were you feeling positive at that time about what the West was trying to do? Did you believe it was going to be a success? I believe that the smart decision had been made by the United Nations at the end of 2001, which was to try to keep a light footprint and prevent very large amounts of foreign troops coming in. I was very concerned when we ramped up the US and Britain and others to 100,000 troops and tried to nation build under fire. 
And I was relieved when we returned back to the light footprint that we've had for the last five years, in which we provided support and the Afghan government was in the lead. Among those trying to help establish an effective Afghan government in those early years was Tom Tugendhat, then a 31-year-old British intelligence officer, recently back from service in Iraq. I was invited to come out to Kabul in March 2005 to help set up the Afghan National Security Council, an organisation in the presidential palace in Kabul, and I was one of two Brits working there. It was fantastic. It was a huge privilege to do it because I worked with the most extraordinarily diverse group of people. You know, some people had fought with the Northern Alliance, some people had fought with the communists, some people had fought with the Mujahideen, one or two had even fought with the Taliban. And we were trying to bring together the new government system and a new government. I spent a year there working in Persian, which was a, which was a new experience, given that I didn't speak it on the, uh, on the day I landed. Um, but by the end, it's sort of, sort of OK. And then one of the people who I'd been working with was named as governor of Helmand in early 2006. I don't know whether flatteringly or insultingly, he basically said to the president, I'm not going unless Tom goes with me. And so I went. I worked with him for a year. It was a fantastic opportunity to try and help build a new society in what was a, even then a drug-ridden, war-torn province. Were you very positive then about the outcome? Did you believe it was going to work or did you have preconceptions that were quickly dispelled? No, I, I thought we could do it, not because of who we were, but of who the Afghans were and are. You know, we talk about resilience in the UK and around the world. I mean, you want to know what resilience is like. It's starting your business again, reopening your business, not after it's been destroyed once by a fire or a flood, but after it's been destroyed for the 30th, 40th, 50th time by war and conflict. And these guys have done it, and they keep doing it. They keep starting again. They have the amazing drive to keep going. And I still think Afghanistan can do it. They're extraordinary people. But in the mid to late 2000s, the security situation began to deteriorate. When I arrived in 2005, I mean, I, I didn't have any particular concern. I mean, you know, I lived in a house in Kabul. I mean, there was a... In the way of Southeast Asia, there was a guard outside, but the guard was 105 and seemed to be asleep most of the day. Um, You you know, (laughs) um, I used to go to the market on my own. I didn't think twice about my security. It wasn't a concern. I went to friends' houses for dinner. uh, I walked to work. And and did you watch that situation deteriorate before your eyes while you were there? Or was it after you left that it started to change? Well, I, I can't speak for Kabul because I, I really left Kabul in 2006. Once I went down to Helmand, that was very different. Uh, and it was already very different. I mean, it, it got much worse from the day I arrived. So I'm, I'm not claiming personal responsibility for destroying it, but it did get worse. I was the only Brit uh, who lived downtown at the time. It wasn't a permissive environment. That's not what I mean. I mean, you know, I wouldn't have gone to the market in the same way, but I did walk a bit to work occasionally, you know, varied times and all the rest of it. And over the over the year or so that I was working for the governor, it, it got progressively worse. By late 2005, Rory Stewart had also returned to Afghanistan, setting up an NGO in Kabul to help restore the city's shattered infrastructure. I went back to Afghanistan and found that the centre of the old city of Kabul was in danger of being demolished and there was enormous need. I mean, I was working in a very poor area of the old city where about one in five children were dying before the age of five and adult life expectancy was about 37 We worked with the community very directly to bring in water supplies, sanitation, sewerage, set up a clinic, set up a primary school, restore 150 historic buildings, set up businesses exporting Afghan crafts and supporting woodworkers, calligraphers, ceramicists, jewellers, ultimately carpet weavers. It was an incredibly fulfilling time. I found Afghans a real joy to work with. There was so much that could be achieved so quickly. Uh, And we transformed that part of the old city very rapidly. Working with Afghans made a lot of difference to many people's lives. Did people reflect on the old regime and and what did they, did they talk about that? What did they think about that? Well, if you were a woman, it was horrifying because you had basically been locked in your house for five years, unable to go to school, unable to go to work, only able to leave your house in a, a, a full burqa. If you were a Hazara, 
from the Hazara community in central Afghanistan, you'd experienced almost a genocidal attempt by the Taliban to wipe out whole communities. And one of the most positive things was the developments in the Hazara regions around Bamiyan, where there was an explosion of educated people, of opportunity, and suddenly that community, which had always been quite poor and marginalised, was really beginning to take the lead in so many parts of Afghan society and business. It was a sense of liberation. It was a sense that people were able to be part of a wider world and they were able to live the kind of middle-class lives in some cases that uh, people might live in somewhere like India. And was there a sense of optimism among people about the, the direction the country was headed at that time or did the security situation mean that was never really the case? I wouldn't say that people were ever hugely optimistic. I mean, security was always fragile. Uh, the uh, police force was inept and corrupt. The government didn't have much support. But remember, that's not unique to Afghanistan. That could characterise Nigeria, Pakistan, Myanmar, or indeed about 50 countries around the world. I mean, weak government, corruption, many of the problems actually that led to the collapse of the Afghan National Army last week are problems that exist in, in many poor developing countries. And Afghanistan, in some ways, was doing better. When do you think it started to go wrong? Did, when, when did you start to become less optimistic about the way that the, the operation was headed? I became very worried in 2005 when the West started getting impatient in Afghanistan and talking about putting in far more troops. I felt that we had the right light footprint. It was a definitely fragile situation in the early days, but Afghans were in the lead. The Taliban were not very active and I felt it was dangerous to allow the Taliban to present themselves as fighting against an international occupation. And I thought it would not be possible for us as the West to achieve the very ambitious dreams of those early days. There was a sort of naive optimism around. Among the first troops sent over in 2005 was Dan Jarvis, an army major in his early 30s, who would later be elected as the MP for Barnsley Central. I was part of a small team that went to recce southern Afghanistan. This was the point at which the UK was deciding to shift its effort from the north of the country down to the south. But this was a, a very difficult and different time. And I remember walking through southern Afghanistan, which was quite peaceful in, in those days, and you were able to stroll quite casually through the bazaars in places like Lashkar Gar. But the next time I would go back, some 18 months or so, uh, you couldn't even drive into those places and the only safe route in and out was by helicopter. Even in those very early days, I got a sense of the huge challenge that faced us in southern Afghanistan and the kind of long logistical resupply chains that were always going to be required. I think we always understood that from a military perspective, never mind the kind of political considerations, it was always going to be a very challenging deployment. That very first visit, were you able to chat to locals were, were people receptive to you were people pleased to see you or were you still you know 20 yards away from a security point of view if you know what I mean we were greeted quite warmly actually by Afghans to begin with and I think it was only when it was clear that there was going to be a significant deployment into Helmand did it become clear that there was going to be a very significant military challenge. And if you look at the nature of the fighting, this has been the toughest fighting that the British Army has been engaged in since Korea. Did you believe initially when you were going out there on those first missions that what you were doing was going to work? Were you positive about the operation and were you? did you have confidence in it? In the early days, I thought it was an incredibly important thing to do. None of us wanted Afghanistan to slip back into the lawless state that it had been previously. You know, I went there believing in the importance of the mission, believing that we were investing our effort in making Afghanistan a, a better place. Was it obvious to you that Western forces were becoming increasingly unwelcome when you returned to Afghanistan? Did it feel like, you know, not just the militants, but the local people turning against that military presence? Well, latterly, that was certainly the case. I mean, I remember being there for six months in, in 2007, where the situation was so dangerous that literally every day you wondered whether you'd make it to the end of the day. The, you know, the IED threat was through the roof. The levels of Taliban activity were incredibly high. And we were increasingly losing the support of local Afghanis who were just completely fed up with the impact that the war was having on their daily lives. 
By the late 2000s, Dan Jarvis, Rory Stewart and Tom Tugendhat were all back in the UK for good and could only watch further developments in Afghanistan from afar. After the break, we'll move to the present day and hear about the panicked phone calls and agonising WhatsApp messages our guests have been receiving from friends and acquaintances now trapped in Taliban-controlled regions. And we'll speak to the Times journalist, Larissa Brown, who's been campaigning for years to get Afghans who work with the British Army out of the country and into safe havens, and for whom this is only the latest chapter of a long and sorry tale. Stay with us. My name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman. I think that the country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and seek the truth with an open mind. For most of us in the West, sat glued to TV news or doom scrolling endlessly through social media, one of the chief concerns these past few days has been how to evacuate those Afghans most at risk of retribution from the Taliban. Thousands of Afghan citizens work closely with British and American forces to try to make the reconstruction of their country a success, and now fear they will pay a terrible price. But while this issue feels new and painfully immediate given the fast-moving events of recent days, for one small group of journalists and campaigners, it's just the latest twist in a saga stretching back six or seven years. Leading the fight has been journalist Larissa Brown, who's campaigned since 2015 for the many hundreds of Afghan interpreters who helped the British Army to be allowed safe passage to the UK. She took time out from this busiest of weeks, she is the defence editor at the Times, to speak to me by phone from her bustling newspaper office. After the British troops left in their sort of combat role in 2014, the Taliban obviously were slowly gaining more and more ground. And every time they went into villages, they were asking for those people who they considered to be infidels, so those people that had been working with NATO countries. So it was these interpreters that, you know, that were then said that they had been left behind uh, after those troops had pulled out. And these are people that were essential, really, for the, the work that the British uh, have been doing over there for so many years. They're an essential part of the, the operation, right? Yes, you'll speak to former uh, military officers now who are absolutely devastated about the situation because they hear from their former interpreters that they say were absolutely crucial on the front line and, and that people they could not have survived without. And, and the British scheme you know, has been generous. Thousands of people have been allowed to the UK so far. But there, of course, there is criteria and some people are failing to meet that and that is why those people haven't yet been allowed to the UK. Predictably, these rules have been arbitrary, bureaucratic and slow to change. Interpreters who spent years working for the British Army have been denied entry to the UK after being accused of minor misdemeanours with no right of appeal. Recently, one was told his application was successful but then had the decision reversed because he'd worked for the British via a third-party contractor. It seems unlikely the Taliban will see the distinction. It's been really hard. I mean, I get WhatsApps throughout the day, throughout the night, uh, all the time, from different people who have been told that they can come to Britain and then, and then been told a few days later that they can't anymore. They'll send me pictures of their children and videos of their children. I was sent one last week of um, one of the interpreters who's just been told he can't come anymore. Um, his children have been practising their English. So I had this video of the two little kids learning you know, how to say, how, how are you, because they were so excited. And so then when you hear that disappointment of these people that feel that they've really been abandoned um, by us and you know, genuinely believe that they, they could be killed, it, it really is heartbreaking. Given the unfolding crisis in Afghanistan, the British visa rules are now being relaxed further. But for some Afghans, it may well be too late. So we're hearing reports of some former Afghans who worked with the British on the front line of not being able to get to Kabul 
There's also one, one person that I've spoken to this morning is an interpreter stuck in France in hiding because he's been told he's going to be deported back to Greece. Now, his family members are still in Afghanistan, his wife and children, and he now hasn't spoken to his wife for a couple of weeks. And the last thing that she said was that she was worried about the Taliban cutting down the phone masts. I mean, it's just really, really stark. I did just have um, a bit of an upsetting conversation because... I'm trying to help one of them. I met her in 2017. She was a lovely, lovely, lovely woman, and she's now hiding in Kabul after she was told on Saturday to just go home from the camp where they were previously, you know, preparing to go out and fight on the front line. And she's just absolutely distraught, you know, as the country's falling apart, and um, she's just sort of begging the international community to not abandon them, basically. You've been campaigning on this issue, frankly, shouting about this issue, Larissa, for years. Has it been frustrating how hard it's been to get people to listen it's been unbelievably frustrating i think we just we spent several years just absolutely flabbergasted at the fact that the government wouldn't change anything you know people probably look back at this and and regret those decisions because now it's absolutely chaotic and it's going to be probably impossible to get all of the people out that actually helped you know helped britain there's still hundreds possibly even thousands waiting to come to the UK and that is a lot of people to process. Larissa's sense of intense frustration was echoed by all three of the politicians I interviewed for the podcast as we moved on to discuss the present day situation. I was flicking through their bios as I was writing this script and what struck me was how despite their personal differences and their political differences, one's a Tory, one's Labour, One's kind of politically homeless now, I guess. The similarities between their stories are striking. Rory Stewart, Tom Tugendhat and Dan Jarvis all headed out to Afghanistan within a few months of one another in 2005, just as things were starting to go badly wrong. Each of them was 31, 32 years old at the time, with a military background and a genuine sense of public duty to match their obvious ambition. Each believed they could and had made a real and lasting difference to securing the future of Afghanistan. Each was back in Britain before the end of the decade, and each was elected to Parliament over the same 12-month period in 2010-11. Each must have hoped they could further influence Western military policy from there. Instead, each has watched helplessly as their collective work unravelled in a few short weeks this summer. What does that feel like? How can you even process something like that? Look, it, 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 I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking. I mean, I can't, I can't begin to describe how it is. It, Tom Tugendhat. I mean, you're watching something that you've worked for, sure, fine. I mean, we often see personal failure coming after individual effort. But not only that, you're seeing something that your friends lost their lives trying to achieve and that your friends are still losing their lives over because it's not over. This is, you know, we haven't seen the worst of this. We haven't seen the end of this. And, you know, we risk at the moment, we risk the biggest hostage crisis that the West has seen in decades because we're not going to be able to get everybody out. You know, these people are not going to be left alone. Even now in Kandahar and Lashkagar, anybody who's connected to us, anybody who's working with us, has been hunted down by the Taliban. When you think of the some of the Afghan people that you met there, that you bonded with and you, you tried to help, what, what are your thoughts for them this week as you see the way the country is changing? Well, I mean, the truth of the matter is, just to be really honest with you, I'm trying not to think too deeply about that because the reality is I suspect that many of them um, have lost their lives in recent times. Dan Jarvis. Many are in mortal danger. Um, many are deeply fearful of the impact that the new administration will have on them and their families. So... I'm deeply concerned about the impact events are having on them and that's why I urge the British government, the Foreign Office, the Ministry of Defence to do everything that they possibly can to look to support those people who've supported us. My phone, even when I'm speaking to you, is full of WhatsApp messages and emails from people desperate to get individuals out of Afghanistan. Rory Stewart. I mean, it's it's horrifying being trapped now in a Taliban-controlled place. People are don't know what on earth they can do. The borders with Pakistan are closed, and we have a deep moral obligation to these people because 
they are people who are at danger directly because they have worked alongside us. And that's just true of working alongside the military. That's true of professors, human rights defenders, uh, teachers, journalists, and hundreds of thousands of people who worked with civilians. And you must feel that even if we were going to withdraw completely, it didn't have to be this way. Well, this was a totally irresponsible, reckless thing with no transition in place. No sincere effort seems to have been made by NATO to think of an alternative to replacing the US presence or doing a transition from a US presence to a broader NATO presence. 2,500 soldiers would have been perfectly sustainable, uh, but no attempt seems to have been done. I mean, this seems as though in a fit of absence of mind, we've just shrugged off all our investment. I mean, it, it's, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary and it's heartbreaking. What do you say to the argument that, that there's just something fundamentally wrong with that idea, that it's a sort of Western imperialism idea that we could just indefinitely have troops in a far-off land sustaining a, a government that would not otherwise be there? I don't think there's anything wrong with the idea that you do that any more than it's wrong to keep UN peacekeepers in South Sudan or Somalia. I mean, this idea that it's somehow Western imperialist fantasy is deeply unrealistic. I mean, it's not something that you would feel if you'd been on the ground in Afghanistan. I mean, if you're a female teacher in an Afghan school, it's completely ludicrous to say that it's for your good that we withdrew the very small number of troops that were keeping security in the country and hand you over to the Taliban because somehow that's more natural. And partly because it's not a sort of innocent world in which you remove American troops and Afghans somehow sorted out for themselves. In reality, what happens is neighbouring countries like Pakistan and Iran flow into the vacuum. I've seen um, much written about whether the whole, the entire operation of Afghanistan was ever worth it, whether it was always doomed, whether you just can't do what the West was trying to do there. Well, it depends what you think the West was trying to do. I mean, if the objective was to turn Afghanistan into Switzerland in 10 years, obviously you can't do that. This is a country where, as recently as 10 years ago, when I was at the police academy in Helmand, we were finding that only eight out of 100 recruits could write their names or recognise numbers up to five. So this was a country which was starting from an unbelievably low base. But if what we were trying to do was prevent the Taliban from taking over the country and allow millions of Afghans to improve their lives and support incredible improvements in healthcare, which were literally saving people from dying, and education, which were transforming lives for women and creating a new, vigorous group of young Afghans connected to the outside world, all those things we had achieved. And we were able to sustain a huge amount of progress in development with a very, very light, relatively cost-free military presence. Does it feel to you, watching what's happened over the last few days, that all of that effort, all of that work has, was almost for nothing? No, it's not for nothing, because we've spent 20 years changing individual lives. I mean, those lives, particularly for those who are now able to get out of the country, and that is a problem, of course, but even for people who can't get out of the country, for 20 years, they were preserved from the horrors of civil war and Taliban rule. And the median age in Afghanistan is 18. The majority of Afghans have not lived under Taliban rule. And they have had an opportunity to live better lives, and nobody can take that away. You know, I worked with a man called Ustad Abdul Hadi, who when I arrived in Afghanistan, he'd been the great, greatest woodworker in Afghanistan, had been reduced to selling bananas in the bazaar. I was able to work with him, give him a job, give him students, train a new generation of Afghan woodworkers in his skills before he died. A tradition was saved. None of that gets lost. That, that's there permanently. It's just very, very sad that we weren't able to continue that progress. I asked Dan Jarvis if he was still able to remain positive about the months of dangerous work he'd undertaken in Afghanistan. Despite the fact I'm heartbroken at what's happened, I'm still proud of the service that we contributed to Afghanistan, still proud of the gains that we made. But you, you, you can't get away from the fact that this is the biggest strategic failure of foreign policy for generations. And I think we will all live with the consequences of that for many years to come. Do, do you fear that you, you wasted all that time and all that energy and all that effort when you were there? Well, 
Of course, I think about that a lot. And of course, I do worry that it was all for nothing. And that sacrifice, that effort that we committed to Afghanistan has been wasted. And it's a heartbreaking thought. And it's particularly heartbreaking for the families of those who've lost loved ones. There are 457 British soldiers who never came home, thousands more who've suffered life-changing injuries. I know from the conversations that I've had how deeply difficult they find the current situation because inevitably, you know, they are asking questions about what their loved ones died for and it's hard to provide much comfort or assurance at this particular moment given the unfolding disaster that Afghanistan has become. And do you think this is the last time we'll see Britain attempt a mission like this? I don't think that there is any prospect that Britain will engage militarily in another country in the way that we have in Afghanistan for some considerable period of time to come. So I think we need to think long and hard about the contribution that we want to make uh, internationally in the future. I think our military capability clearly is a very important part of that, but perhaps a bit like the Vietnam experience for the Americans, I think our experiences in Afghanistan will shape future policy for a generation or more to come. I asked Tom Tugendhat the same question. Uh, look, I, I can't, I'm, I'm not even going to try to predict that. But what I'll say is that the, the cost of action is something that we all see. We've, we've seen it in Iraq, we've seen it here. We know, some of us know incredibly personally, what the cost of this action is in terms of lives, in terms of friends, in terms of effort. We know that. But there is a huge cost to inaction too. And we shouldn't ignore that. When Joe and I, Joe Cox and I were working together on a paper for policy exchange called The Cost of Doing Nothing, when she was murdered. And in that paper, we set out what that cost of inaction truly is. Because the reality is, the cost of inaction is ungoverned spaces, it's terrorism. It's other powers stepping in and undermining our position and making decisions that affect our lives. Did you ever think it could go this wrong? No, I, I, I thought in the last few years that the worst we were going to get to would be some form of negotiated settlement with the Taliban. I mean, let's not mince our words here. This is, this is a complete defeat. This is, this is the routing of the United States Army by a jihadist death cult. Is there a moment now when you look back that you can point your finger at and say that was the, that was the moment that actually now I can see that it, that it started to go badly wrong? I mean, as ever, you know, it's the, it's the old joke about how did you go bankrupt slowly at first, then quickly. I, it's, it's very hard to say that there's a single moment, but it is clear now that many decisions that were taken really fundamentally undermined what we were claiming to do. You know, those decisions were undermined by people like President Obama when he set a limit. They were undermined by people like President Trump when he negotiated behind the back of the Afghan government for the release of Taliban prisoners. And they were most dramatically undermined, of course, recently when President Biden ordered the withdrawal of US forces and did it in the worst possible way, which saw... Americans who'd been fighting side by side with Afghans leave like thieves in the night as though they bore them no greater allegiance than some passing... It's appalling. Is there anything else you wanted to say, Tom, reflecting on your time in Afghanistan that we haven't touched upon? So one of the things I did when I was the advisor to the governor was I used to go out and meet people, often secretly and at night. I'd go with a small group of Afghans and we'd go and talk in villages miles and miles away from the centre. And we'd sit often all night with what's called a shura, a council, which is just basically a group of old men, and talk about the future and talk about who said what to who at weddings and you know the usual sort of things you chat about over tea and raisins and walnuts and one of the things 
that people said to us all the time was, look, of course we want to do a deal with you, of course we want to work with you, of course we don't want our sons and our children going off to be talibs and get murdered for trying to sell drugs or become addicts themselves because they've, the opium has seeped into their blood through their fingers. Of course we don't want that. But we can't do it unless you commit to the future. We can't do it unless we know you're here tomorrow. Because if you leave and we've done a deal with you, then it won't just be us that's punished. It's our entire family. It'll be our children, our grandchildren. And I heard that time and again. The key to us being successful, the key to Afghanistan's freedom was strategic patience. And what really worried me then and has become clear today is that we wouldn't have the patience to endure. It's that patience that liberated not just Germany, but the whole of Eastern Europe. We sat and waited for 45 years after the end of the Second World War. It's that strategic patience that turned South Korea and Japan into enormously prosperous democracies and, by the way, made us prosperous by association. That's what really, really matters and that's what we've got to find again. That was an episode of Westminster Insider called Postcards from Afghanistan. My thanks to Jack Blanchard, Christina Gonzalez, and the rest of the Politico Europe team for letting us feature this episode. That's all for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Foreign Policy Magazine. I will say honestly and without bias, we put out a ton of great journalism and opinion every day, almost all of it behind a paywall. That's how we pay the bills. I've been a subscriber for two decades. There is no better source for foreign news. This show is produced by Zamone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. I'm Dan Efron. See you next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast. Hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com